Terry Perone, you're so welcome to Unfiltered. Not only the first season, but the first episode. You are the definition of unfiltered. I don't tend to be very cautious in what I say. If I believe it, I'm going to say it. When you walk into a room, you just take over. Like, people want to hear what you have to say. They might not like it, but they want to hear what you have to say, don't they? I think that probably came from the kind of family I come from. Because... Our family had a number of things going for it. Music, uh, arguments, arguments all the time, um, illness, stuff like that. But the arguments were, my father believed that if, if you even said today is Tuesday, you should be able to prove it. <laughs> okay, so you actually questioned everything that everyone said because of your father. Yes. The reason that I began to perform if you like yeah was that I had a desperate accident when I was four that's right yeah I got a um a tricycle and you don't want to know the gory details but the end result was I couldn't talk and I had to be sent to elocution classes and then the whole class got sent to the fish and I won first prize oh my god and my picture was in the paper I was famous well in a small way at seven yeah and um did you like that feeling of like i'm saying people are talking about me now people are not so like the young age yeah. so you liked it okay and it was it that's a really good question because it was a two-way thing in school particularly in secondary school when i was beginning to do television and i was a bit more famous the nuns loved having a famous pupil to be trotted out if there was a bishop or a parish priest visiting. But the minute the bishop or the parish priest was gone, they would give me hell so that I wouldn't get above myself. But I never wanted to get above myself. I, You want me to perform, I'll perform. But otherwise, I'm the same as everybody else. So school was awful, 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 awful. I hated school. Did you have many friends in school? I had a friend who lived on the same road, Anne Sheehy. And Anne ended up being my bridesmaid. And it just, she was a good person. But it wasn't particularly, we happened to be in the same class in school. Other than that, I pretty much hated all the people in school too. Why? They hated me. And why do you think that was? I shared this bench thing with a lovely girl named Thrasa Dre. And I would say if you went and found Thrasa Dre today, she would still hate me. Because I'm a slob. I just take out everything out of the school bag. Everything went all over the place. And she eventually, she invested in a big, thick ruler so she could firmly push all my stuff back to my side of the desk. I was a passionate reader, and so I would be using words that eight, nine-year-olds didn't use. That got me hated because it was assumed to be, you know, showing off. I was asthmatic, so I couldn't play sports, so that cut me away from all of that. So really, school was not a great place. I mean, I won a lot of prizes. I won... Painting competitions, writing competitions, the fish. And then I started being on television when I was 13. Yeah, that's right. That's what I was just about to say to you there. Like, you seem like you have always been 
really ahead of your time no matter what age you were you were always so far advanced like even when you were in school and I'm gonna presume you were talking about primary school there but that's very presumptuous of me well yeah I was mostly talking about primary school but it was when I was in secondary school you know I don't know what year it was yeah um Sister Annunciata Okay. Uh, came in. Now, the Holy Faith nuns, if you looked at their outfit now, they had this huge kind of a shelf thing that their veil sat on. And they were then all covered up with white stuff and they had this vicious belt that they would strike us with, except that uh, at some stage, some nun struck my sister. And uh, she came in at lunchtime and said this to my mother. Hilary wasn't that bothered. My mother said, get your coat back on. And went straight down to the school, went to the headmistress's office and said, if anybody in this school lays a hand on either of my daughters, I will have you in court the next day for common assault. Wow, Terry. I'm really shocked to hear that, if I'm being honest. And I'll tell you why. I would have thought that was like nearly the done thing. I know it wasn't okay. But I thought people accepted it. But that's incredible. My mother, that mother didn't, didn't accept. My mother had wow. a powerful sense of the rules and a sense of where she fitted. And it, it was fascinating to watch her in action because she was a powerful role model. She was infinitely courteous, but thus far and no further with you. But anyway, when when I was in secondary school, Sister Nunciata okay. arrived into this class this day and said. I have two tickets. This was before people talked about a pair of tickets. I have two tickets for Teen Talk. Now, I'm looking at her going, because we didn't have a television. My parents didn't approve of television, so I didn't know what Teen Talk was. They totally disapproved of television. They thought it was the greatest waste of young people's time. Time was for reading books and learning stuff. Wow, that's fair. Well, listen, it paid off well for you anyway. (laughs) But also, I don't know, you're too young to remember. But television at the time included a thing called Mr. Ed. Mr. Ed. You never saw The teat. The the horse. The horse. My my dad always, uh, he always referenced to him, actually. My dad and my granddad. I've often heard of him, yeah. (laughs) It was the worst thing ever done in television. It was vile. So I didn't miss that much. But anyway, Teen Talk was this programme. Right. And they had an adult panel. Right. And an audience full of teenagers. Now, they were kind of late teenagers, And they were people who went on to be famous like Vincent Brown. They were people who were in university and that sort of stuff. And uh, they asked questions, the panel answered, and then there was toing and froing. So um, the girls were all terribly excited because the guy who presented it was one of these guys. Do you know every now and again a television woman or man comes along who isn't just good at what they do but everybody just loves them they're lovely and it shows they're genuinely nice who do you think sorry i'm stopping you who do you think (laughs) is that person right now not gonna answer (laughs) (laughs) but in in america it was until he died last year alex trebek the guy who presented jeopardy he was a Canadian and he was just 
an honest broker and he wasn't full of himself. But the guy at the time was in Ireland, a guy named Bunny Carr. And every, I mean, there apparently there used to be a procession of cars on a Sunday afternoon out through Sutton for, with people just wanting to look in at his house. He was that adored. He was that famous. So fine. I didn't know any of that. So Annunciata, Nuncio as we called her, said she was going to send a girl from sixth year and Terry Prone. And I'm kind of going, oh, okay. By golly, the sisterhood did not kick in. Oh, the sisterhood didn't kick in. All the other pupils in the class said, you can't send Terry prone, she's too young. You're supposed to be 16 and she's only 13. And Nuncio looked at them and she said, Terry will wear the very high heels that she doesn't <laughs> think I know she has. And she looks 16. Oh and I and she also said to me that I was to ask a question and I was to ask an intelligent question. No pressure or anything. <laughs> and me and this other girl went on the night. And before we went into the studio. This was in in, in, in Montrose, in okay. RTE. And you know in Montrose, the place where there's this beautiful soaring staircase. Yeah. There was a guy walking around in that area and all the teenagers were there and he was asking them what questions they'd like to ask. Okay. And I was listening. And they were asking really pompous questions like if the panel were to bury a time capsule in Dublin at the moment, what would be in it? And I'm thinking, oh, and he came near me and he said, do you have a question? And I said, yeah. I said, why are parents so against their kids sucking their thumbs? Because <laughs> it doesn't make you fat, doesn't give you cancer and doesn't cost anything. And he looked at me as if I had crawled out from under a stone. And he <laughs> said, your name? And I said, Terry Prone. Fine, Fine. So then we went in, and of course, because I was a painter, I was fascinated by the set and the signature tune and the way he played around with the audience so that everybody was in good humour. And then the countdown came and the music came up and then he turned to the camera and he said, and our first question today comes from Terry Prone. And I asked my question and... The adult panel immediately patronised me and the teenagers got livid because they thought it wasn't an important enough question. And I thought, hump this for a game of soldiers. And I simply fought with all of them. And then they moved on to the next question and I was back to looking at the set and everything. And Bunny Carr said, Miss Prone might have a view. And I was thinking, oh, Jesus, what's the question? And... I said, I disagree with everybody who has spoken so far, because that was playing for time. <laughs> and, oh, there was murder. And the programme was a commercial half hour. As you know, 26 minutes. It was over, it seemed to me, in 12. Yeah. And suddenly the studio lights went out. And all the magic was gone, and it was back to being ordinary. And I was suddenly thinking... Oh, God, school tomorrow and Nuncio is going to give out hell. And I was just progressing towards the main door. Do you know the, the spinny round door yeah. in Orti? And somebody took hold of my arm 
And I, I kind of said, yeah. And he said, Terry, my name is Dennis O'Grady. I'm the producer of this programme. We've never had a teenager on the panel, but I was wondering if you'd like to come back next week and be on the panel. Terry, that's insane. And I said, but all I did was cause a row. And he said, yes. And I suddenly realised, oh, you don't have to be beautiful, although it can help. You don't have to be talented. You don't have to be academic. For television, what you need to be able to do is to create heat, emotional heat. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. And so I went back the next week. And from then on, at 13, I was a panelist there. I was a panelist on The Late Late Show. And I was... I was being stopped in Grafton Street and asked for my autograph. I can nearly feel it from you, like how you felt when you walked into the studio, because I honestly get the same feeling. I know the feeling you're talking about. It's the best feeling ever. Isn't it? It really is. But what I'd like to know is, you know, when you ask that question, were you thinking in your head, right, I'm going to ask something so different than everyone else because they're so boring. Or like, were you were you just been like, I actually, I'm just going to ask this question because you didn't know. What oh I no, to ask. it was my mother had a thing where if you were average, if if she she would read something that you'd done for school, you know, an essay, and she would say, it's average, and you would want to go in a corner and die, yeah, and you would tear out the page and start again. Because being average was never... You had to be exceptional. And exceptional just meant... Surpri- well, it sometimes just meant surprising people, making people go, ooh. And that's still true of radio and television. I'm fascinated when people go on... Do you know the panel programmes where they're looking at the newspapers of the day? Yeah. And they arrive unprepared. As if it was okay to do pub talk. It's never okay to do pub talk. So that was why it had to be different and even if it was not a, a you know an unimportant or a worthwhile question, as long as it was different, it was important. Like were you always like, accept me for who I am, take it or leave it? Or would did was that even a thing in your head? That last question is is the point. It wasn't really a thing in my head. It was, you see, if you were going into the fesh, if you were competing in the fesh, it was a performance. You had to hit particular marks. And similarly with television and even, you know yourself, you're doing a radio program and there's two other people. You're in maybe minute three, and one of the other people says, well, as Sarah said earlier, you're winning. You're winning because you're setting the agenda. It's something that I train people to look out for. Are people referring back to what you already said? And if not, why not? It was never a thing of, do you love me? Do you really love me? Um, am I adequate? None of that. I knew there was a job to be done. Yeah, and I really appreciate you saying that because I know exactly what you're saying. I can really relate to that. Like, you can have fun, but there's still a job to be done. And I think that's the biggest mistake that people make when they come on TV or radio, as you just said there. 
they think they're watching say the likes of you or say Jennifer Zamparelli and they're like it looks like you just rocked up because you make it look so seamless did you find choosing being in the media industry challenging back then knowing it wasn't a progressive industry for women at the time well you see I went into the theatre I was in the Abbey Theatre as a member of the Abbey Theatre Company when I was 16 yeah I was really good. I mean, I was just really good. And I was summoned to the artistic director's office this day, and he said, Stan, Miss Prohn. And I thought, this is not good. And he, he told me that I was the best of the young actors that he had. And I'm thinking, this is still not good. And then he said that he couldn't cast me as Juliet or as any romantic lead, because I was so fat. And that I needed to do something about it, because, yes, I was a very good character actor, but he had 50 and 60-year-olds already doing that. And I'm sitting there thinking, but I have tried so hard. I have tried so hard, and I can't do this. I, I would lose two stone and then and I walked out and I knew that's the end of me as an actor. That's just the end. You thought it was the end of you as an actor because he said you were too fat? Yes. Wow. Because he was right. I was going to be playing 60 year olds when I was 17. What's the point? And by one of the weird coincidences in my life, at that time I got offered a radio program and I moved into radio where they can't see you and they don't know what shape you're in. So I'm sitting there and this man came over and he said, um, you're Terry Prone, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, my name is Billy Wall. I'm the producer of a new program that's going to be coming on in about five weeks time, every morning. It's going to be called The Gay Burn Hour. And I was wondering if you'd like to be the researcher and scriptwriter. I became the scriptwriter for Gay Burn. And it was just magic. Now, so you, like Gay Burn would have been absolutely huge at that time. So were you kind of taken back being like, I'm going to be working on his show? Or were you, you just take everything in your stride, do you? It, it wasn't so much in my stride as the sense of, I'm going to get to work with the best. I really like the way that you communicate in the sense of you're honest, you're direct, you're to the point. I think most people don't like that mm-hmm. because they're not able for it. Whereas the reason I would like that is I'm like, I don't have time. Come on, move it on. Just tell me now where I'm going wrong so I can learn fast, move forward and just get on to the next thing. I'm like, I can't be dilly-dallying. But why do you think people can't really handle direct communication I think that people have and it's one of the most dangerous urges they have an overwhelming urge to be liked a need to be liked and the weird contradictory thing about the need to be liked is that it immediately stops you being likable whereas somebody who says you don't have to like me I've got something to offer you here it is it doesn't matter to me whether I'm liked or not. 
but when I'm working with people, if I was preparing you for a television program, yeah. I would be so bloody direct and I would take no nonsense from you and I'd say, no, do it again. Do it six times, do it until you have a muscle memory of doing it. Hit your mark, do it. And I have trained so many, particularly broadcasters, but also politicians, but the broadcasters, the great thing is that they forget. They forget that they were trained. They think that they were always this good. And that's the best thing in the world because why would I need them to be remembering that it was me who told them to do this, do that, stop doing that? And like that again, it comes across like a really seamless situation. And even they believe that it's seamless, but they've actually been trained by one of the best communicators oh. in the country. But you also, you ha- I, when I was writing, I uh, did a memoir called Caution to the Wind just before Christmas, right? And it's in all good bookshops and all that jazz. But the same thing was said by so many reviewers and commentators that this is a searingly honest memoir, that this is not self-serving. And I'm looking at things, ah, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be as honest about me as I am to other people. And so one of the things that I described was about when I was about seven or eight, watching my grandfather with my sister and thinking, he loves Hillary more than he loves me. Why is that? Now, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is I was just curious. Then I realized, ah, Hillary always asks him about himself, whereas I tell him about me. And it was one of those blinding flashes where you realize people are not interested in you. They're interested in themselves. And even people on social media who are being horrible about you, they need to be important. They need to be angry. But you don't have to hang around them. When I was... uh, starting in the theatre and in in radio and and journalism. I was teetotal, and I still am. And it was kind of expected that you would spend night after night in the pub or in clubs. And I realised, no, there's no law that says that you have to. Why would I choose to spend time with people who are pissed as newts who don't know what they're doing, are going to throw up all over you, who are going to need to be taken home and minded, and the following day they're going to be crying and moaning, they won't remember what they did, and you have to read it. I don't need it. I do not need that. <laughs> and I would say exactly the same about the trolls on social media. Don't go there, don't check them out. I totally agree with you, I really do, and I think that would be so refreshing for other people to hear, so. because as you were saying earlier the people keep going back for it you don't have to read it and also you made a really important remark there about they need to feel important too and that was one thing i remember looking at an interview with simon cowell and he said he learned from a young age from his dad that everyone in a, in a room and it honestly stuck with me for like forever to this day from a very young age that everyone wants to feel important in a room, no matter who they are. It doesn't matter how yes. 
famous they are they want to feel like they're important and they're they're worthy of of being there and also oprah also said as well that she'd done over i think at the time she said maybe i don't know if i'm raving but i'm almost certain she said 36,000 interviews mm-hmm. and she said that every single time they came off set and they're like did i do okay like we're all we are always looking for approval that means that each of us has the most fantastic free gift available to us every day to give to somebody else the free gift of attention yeah i think it can i give somebody a bit of advice through your podcast please if there was one thing i would say to anybody who's kind of anxious or worried about the get five coins 20 cent coins whatever put five in your left hand pocket as you go out in the morning and transfer them coin by coin into your right hand pocket as you make somebody else feel wonderful because as you said people are aching to be noticed they're aching to get a compliment not that says you did a good job there but wow what a fantastic question to ask about the and people gosh yeah i did that and i feel great and at the end of the day check have you transferred the five coins from one pocket to another because if you have you don't need to go on social media to find out if you're a good person or a bad person you're a good person yeah that's really nice piece of advice terry i think people would really really like that and appreciate it for sure um I always feel like you have this like hardcore exterior. You're a very independent woman. But would you ever reach out and ask for help? Or are you just like, I'll do it myself and that's it? (laughs) She's laughing. My (laughs) lovely husband, my lovely late husband, Tom Savage, was being interviewed by a journalist at some stage who said to him, what's it like to be married to Terry Prone? And Tom thought for a minute and then he said, it's like living with a leaky football. He said, she goes out Monday morning, all blown up already, and I get her back Friday evening completely collapsed. And he said, it's my job over the weekend to reinflate her. Oh, that's so lovely. I didn't ever have to ask him. That was his job. That was what he was there for. He thought that I was absolutely wonderful and clever and brilliant and great and all those things. And his job was to rescue me when I came in and he'd be sitting in chairs very much like these. And I'd go and sit down, put my head on his knee and sometimes I would cry and... He would rescue me all the time. So the honest answer to your question is that I never asked for emotional help from anybody else in my life. Because you didn't have to with you didn't have to with your husband anyways, for sure. That's so, so lovely, Terry, because I know from this industry it can be so it can be so rewarding, but it can be so draining and 
in the sense of you give so much of yourself to people and by the end of the week your batteries are going to be flat naturally of course they are and then the last thing you need is to go home and then nobody to be there to uplift you but so when you have that and not have to ask because that'll drain your, your batteries even more <laughs> do you know what I mean now Terry you have a very interesting story about how you met your husband would you mind if we talked about that okay go from um, the beginning <laughs> Bunny Carr the man who had spotted me on the teen talk program when I was 13 he always kept an eye on me he always pulled me into things he was doing and he asked me when he became director of the Catholic Communications Centre, would I come in and train parish priests in how to give sermons? He rang me and asked me, I said, Jesus, Bunny, I know shag all about how to give sermons. He said, you'd be very good. And he said, anyway, I'll put in one of my senior lecturers to make sure you don't do anything wrong. Can I stop you there, Terry? Were you religious? No, Okay, okay. But uh, sorry, let me be very clear. I came from a very Catholic family in that my father had been a seminarian at one stage. He served mass every day of his life in the local French Sisters of Charity convent. And we, you know, we were religious in the way that most people in Ireland were religious. It never occurred to us not to be religious. I'm with you. No, that's that's fair enough. So sorry. So yeah, I I arrived this day and I had these parish priests and there was one of them and I had recorded his sermon and it was kind of boom boom boom. You behave yourself, and I stopped it and I said, more or less, do you have to be that bullying? And he got livid with me and he said, the good Lord told us that we were to be the shepherds of his flock. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but not sheepdogs. <laughs> and the rest of the priests laughed, but the senior priest who'd been put in to watch me stood up and left. And I thought, oh God, am I ever in trouble now? So when the coffee break came, and fair dues to the old priest. Well, he was 50. I'm kind of past that age myself. He was only in his um, prime, Terry. He, <laughs> nice one. He, um, he, he said that he would try and um, not be a sheepdog, which was very decent of him. But when I came out, I went down to Bunny's office and I said, your, your senior guy left. What, what do you say? And Bunny said, he said, you didn't need him watching over you that you were flying. Oh. And this was Father Tom Savage. And he had a beetle haircut and I began to get to know him. I began to be fascinated by him. And he would sometimes drop into my parents' house in the evening because you see, I didn't have a social life. I was never anywhere else. And say, any chance of a cup of tea, four spoons of sugar. And um, (laughs) this evening, my parents were, I think they'd gone to the Abbey. And as, as I was listening to him, I realized, oh, shit, I actually love you. Yeah, and, and this is no good because you're a priest and you're a priest for good. And I said, more or less that I needed to say this because yeah. honesty and all that jazz. And he smiled at me and he said, oh, Tess. I think you know I've loved you since the first day we met. 
And I think we should get married. Now, <laughs> I'm further away from him than you are from me now. And this is a man who's never touched me, never kissed me, never as much as put his hand on my shoulder. And there's a long stunned silence. <laughs> and then he said, do you think you could come over and sit beside me? <laughs> and that was, the, that was the beginning of three years of hell because the Catholic Church was horrible to him because they fired him immediately. Our, our families were desperately upset. They disapproved. So it was just a bad three years. And then slowly, it was like sunflowers turn into the sun. Everything gradually came right. And our families, my father asked to give me away. And it was all beautiful. Very unique story. But again, it wouldn't be you if it wasn't unique. <laughs> really, though. But like, I just want to know. So when you met him, were you... Because we all know that feeling of like when we meet somebody and you just can't stop thinking of them. But like... Like, say for us now, you can literally go on your phone, be stalking everyone online. What are they up to? Where, where are they now? Were you like just sitting at home at the window going, I'm definitely not going out now in case Tom calls over for tea? No, first of all, it was about, it was about six weeks before it suddenly struck me that whenever anybody talked about him or whenever I heard his voice or whenever I'd see him walking towards me and he... He never, he didn't smile. He didn't smile. He had a way of going, a real countryman's <laughs> thing. And he also didn't laugh. He had a very quiet sort of snigger that he would do. But any of those things, I would, it would be like a lurch in my heart. And it took me a while to realize, oh, this is it. Like that had to have been so controversial. And, oh my God, like, priests were like, and probably still are like local celebrities, really. And everyone, you know. And it was worse with him because he was on television a lot. So that he was the television priest. Okay. And it, it was, it was very tough. Um, I think his family thought I was Jezebel, the harlot from the Bible, that I had seduced him with, yeah. I don't know, my evil ways. Like you married a priest. Like, it sounds insane. But scandalous. Scandalous. And the letters that Tom got from other priests were shocking. Stop. I still have some of them. and um, Why would you keep them? I'm a great one to hold a grudge. Are you doing I am, yeah. <laughs> and I knew, you see, that Tom would forget them instantly. And I was thinking, somebody needs to keep a record. Like, I, I, all I can picture <laughs> is, like, you know that movie Happy Gilmore, where the guy got bullied in school and he has the list of names. <laughs> and he's like... There you go. Then the guy that, like, stopping, like, stopped bullying him when he was later in life, you could see him crossing off his name and, like, I'm not going to kill him. <laughs> I am so proud to announce my very first sponsor from my podcast, Unfiltered, with Sarah Jane Foster. It is my good pals from Pit a Pit. They are a family-run business based in Blackhall and Mullingar. They are a huge part of the community and they have been very supportive of me since day one. So it's important to have these kind of people in our lives and I'm very grateful for them. So if you're in Pitta Pit, I'd recommend my personal favourite, the spicy buffalo chicken Caesar Pitta. What do you think of that, Terry? Wow. Anton was born uh, kind of around midday on a Sunday. 
and he was handed to me and I'm holding him and checking, is he okay? And at the same time, I'm thinking, I'm losing my marbles because I can hear myself talking. And what had happened was that they had put on a radio in the labour ward and there was a pre-recorded item with me talking to Andy O'Mahony. So it wasn't that I'd lost my marbles, it was actually me talking. And I said to the nurse, I was due to do an interview tomorrow. And she said, yeah. And I said, well, I can't do it now. Terry. <laughs> and she said, what's your problem? This is a hospital. You leave Anton here, he'll be grand, go do your interview. I said, wow. So I went off and uh, the interview was with a fabulous, l- lovely broadcaster named Vincent Hanley who had made it on MTV and who later died tragically young, but he was he was really good. And I did the interview with him and towards the end I said, you know, I was changing battery or tape or something. And I said, you, you don't seem yourself. And he said, you said you were pregnant? I said, oh, sorry, I, I had him yesterday. He's oh, grand. <laughs> and... Vincent is looking at me and you can tell he doesn't want to be in the same room as somebody who's just had a baby. And then I realised, this is it. It's really simple. Babies are light. They're small. You take them with you and that is the ultimate reason for breastfeeding. Let's not have any of the big health stuff and the virtue and all that jazz. Breastfeeding is handy. There was an item on the Gay Burn Hour every week called the shopping basket. And we went to five different shops and compared prices. I put them up on my back and off I went. And it's amazing the places that you can take a baby if you just take a baby, if you just don't make an issue of it. The former president, Mary McAleese, said that the funniest meetings she ever had were with Anton when Anton was about six or seven because she said his father would arrive in, introduce Anton as if he was an adult. Mary McAleese, this is Anton. And Anton would take the attitude that he was the adult and if anybody wanted an opinion, he would be happy to offer it. And she just thought this was the funniest thing, that a kid would be brought into us and she absolutely loved it. And again, it was because Tom thought Anton was the most perfect human being who ever lived, the most interesting child, the cleverest human being. And why wouldn't he bring him wherever he was going? Of course. <coughs> yeah, it's so refreshing. And then do you think that that's why, because Anton is in this industry now as well. So do you think that's why he's he's in this industry? Because he, he grew up with it, with you. He, he went to your meetings. He's seen you in action. I think that some of the reason that he is in our business, our businesses, if you like, are because he watched me and Tom, for example, training people, helping people when they had a crisis in their life. And he was very fascinated by that. And he's just a brilliant trainer. He's he's much better trainer than I am. Wow. He And that's saying something, because I'm very good. But Anton 
can see around corners and see possibilities that I might miss. Um, but then the broadcasting thing, he, he just, it wasn't just us. He, his godfather was Bunny Carr. His best pal was Gay Byrne. He used to go up to uh, Gay up in Hope on his, mo on his motorbike because Anton had a motorbike very early and the two of them would sit down, drink tea, discuss motorbikes and he would learn and hear things particularly about standards that it wasn't good enough to take a guess at how a word was pronounced. You found out. You found out. You know, it wasn't good enough to come into studio just as the signature was playing. You had to be there in enough time to have everything sorted. So before he was ever the broadcaster that he is now, he was a doyen of standards and he was training broadcasters that are now household names. Wow. And he was training them when he wasn't a broadcaster before he did broadcasting. So he's 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 very much his own man, Anton. He is not son of. If I look back, I probably uh, involved Anton too much in the publicity for things that I was doing. I look back and I, I now I think pictures of him with me when he was four, when he was five, when he, now he had a great time, he loved doing it, but he was in no position to make that choice, to make that decision. And if I was doing it again, I wouldn't involve him. Yeah, that's fair enough. And it's it's good that you do recognise that. And I suppose, again, you kind of have to apply that advice to social media. People post their kids all the time. And I really believe that people don't actually understand the power of social media sometimes. They say, I only have a couple of followers. And it's like, yeah, you don't know where that can go. You've no idea where Anybody it can go. Anybody can screenshot anything yeah. and send it to anybody else. Yeah. And like like that, it has its pos positives and it has its negatives. If something was to go viral and it was, you know, to give you great publicity, that's great. But like that, then if it's something that you don't want, it, it can't be great. But yeah, it is good that you've recognized that for people on social media these days, for sure. Um, Terry, I want to talk about your book. You have a book out. Tell me about your book. We can't not talk about it. <laughs> it's called Caution to the Wind. Do you want, do, can I tell you how, why it's called Caution? I was just about to ask. You, you're like Anton now. You know what, what the other person is thinking. Then. Well, no, it's, it's just that I, my life has been kind of reckless and, and I've done all sorts of exciting things. But I couldn't think of a good title. And my agent was sending me, lovely Jonathan, he was sending me suggestions and I was saying no. And then I'd said, and <laughs> I went to Next in Newry this day bought a skirt and as I was hanging it up when I got it home I looked at the label and the label said caution to the wind and I said title 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 yes what what made you write this particular book one of the reasons was that I wanted young women to not believe that there's only one way to achieve what they want because I'm a university dropout I'm somebody who can't add or subtract, and yet I am the most successful 
businesswoman for the longest period in Irish history. Yeah, it's incredible. That's why I have you here today, Terry. Like, honestly, do you know, like, when I asked you to come on the on the podcast and you said, I think um, Aileen maybe said, um, can you come to me? And I remember, like, you know, I was kind of pushing boundaries, which I'm going to be honest. I was like, no, I need Terry Prone here. Like, she will love this. I was like, I know she will. She'll enjoy it. And I was like, in the back of my mind, I was like, please don't say no. And then I think Aileen mentioned, can we do it on, on Zoom? And I was like please don't say no, Terry, but no, we can't do it on Zoom. Can, you, can we get her to come here? Good so, on you, yes. <laughs> so pushing boundaries is, is yep. such a big thing and, and that's, I'm, that's exactly what you've done and that's, I'm sure that's how you've got. But the other thing was that I wanted, I wanted people to have fun because it's been a fun life. It, it's not, oh, I was an asthmatic and I was really sick and then I had this car crash and I... Oh, God, who needs any of that, you know? <laughs> I I wanted to say, look, it is possible to have a great business life. It's possible to have a great artistic life because I've published 30 books. Yeah. It's possible to be a great friend and to have great friends and to have children and a husband that you love more than life itself. And you don't have to do the thing of either or. You just have to select things. I mean, the thing of, well, I'm not going to go to every party and every uh, dinner. Similarly, I don't give a sugar about the house. You want <laughs> to paint it? Paint it. You want uh, we have cleaning lady? Find a cleaning lady. You know, I this thing of that if you're not... If your house is not filled with the scent of freshly baked scones, do you know you're not really my arsed? <laughs> you pick and choose the things that matter. The things that mattered to me were Tom, Anton, the company, the people who worked for the company, the people that we were training, and books, just to be able to shut the door. The book deals with my childhood and um, with encountering Tom with the suffering that happened there and Tom and then Tom's cancer and finally Tom's death. What a way to end your book as well to have had Tom by your side and to be so significant in your life and then you know, to, to end the book with, with Tom and just talking about your fabulous... I wanted people to know Tom. I wanted... Because he had had roles like he was chairman of the RT Authority. But that's just a role. I wanted people to know him the way I knew him. Yeah, and I think it's also nice when somebody passes away that you continue speaking about them and keeping them alive. I think it's so lovely. What do you think? It was something that Tom used to say to people when he was a priest. He would say... People don't die if the living keep them alive in conversation. Yeah, and it's so true. And I also think as well with death, like when people, you know, if they see somebody upset about somebody, being upset about somebody after passing away, I always find that 
just because you don't acknowledge the person has passed away it doesn't make you forget about the person so it's so much nicer and easier to keep continue to talk about the person and to keep them alive and being honest like throughout this whole conversation I never felt that Tom had passed away it really felt like he was here and I'm I would be a spiritual person but it definitely felt like he was here it didn't feel like he was gone thank you so much um for sharing all those lovely memories with them it was really really nice thank you so much for coming on unfiltered it was fabulous thank you